0: dedicated to making the classics readable, relevant, and fun. Each episode, we'll discuss one classic book and share some recommendations for more contemporary reads that feature similar themes. As two nerdy bookworms, we appreciate the role of classic lit, but we won't get too academic about it. We'll talk about the books we love and the books we loathe and help stock your TBR pile with old and new reads for every literary taste. Hey, Chelsea.
1: Hi, Sarah. How are you today?
0: I am so
1: excited to talk about this very fall book with you. This is going to be a fun one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, we
0: haven't really talked much about this one off mic, so I don't even have any sense of what you think about this particular play. I know a little bit about your background with it, but not so much your insights on it, and so I just can't wait to dive in
1: yes this is this is going to be really fun to talk about so we are chatting about the crucible today and the crucible is based on real events of the salem witch trials and arthur miller's own experience with the mccarthy trials so miller wrote the crucible to demonstrate the dangers of false accusations and groupthink This play tells the story of 1692, the Salem witch trials, through the interpersonal drama of two main characters, Abigail Williams and John Proctor. So prior to the events of the play, Abigail worked in the Proctor's home as a servant, but she was fired by John's wife, Elizabeth, when Elizabeth discovered that John and 17-year-old Abigail were having an affair. And desperate to punish Elizabeth and get John back... And avoid persecution after being caught dancing in the forest. Abigail begins accusing fellow villagers of witchcraft. And she sort of becomes the leader of all of these girls, and they become revered by the town magistrates and extremely powerful in their ability to accuse and condemn anyone who crosses them. So the play and the history end with the execution of 19 people who were accused of witchcraft.
0: I love a work of historical fiction. And this is just the setting and the history of the Salem Witch Trials is so fascinating. I I feel like it's endlessly fascinating. Generation after generation of students and historians and just people are so interested in this particular event in American history and this particular portrayal of it. I think, shapes a lot of what we understand about the Salem Witch
1: Trials. It definitely does, because when you look at the history of it, there's so much room for interpretation, and historians still argue about what the cause of the hysteria was. And I think that part of all of this is fascinating, but like you said, I love Historical fiction, and that's what this play is.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back to that idea of the interpretation of the history itself, but let's start with talking about our experiences
1: with this particular play. And you have quite the experience with this play. (laughs) I do. So I read this play my freshman year in English class in high school. While also rehearsing for my school's production as Mary Warren. So I literally learned my lines in class when we read aloud together. So it was amazing. (laughs) And you told me that you'd played
0: Mary Warren, but I couldn't remember exactly who Mary Warren was. And then when I
1: rewatched The Crucible, that's a pretty big role. It's an important role. Yeah, I was feeling myself. Um, it was a pretty big deal for a freshman to get that big of a part in the play. So of course, I was like, really proud of myself and excited. And um, it was a lot of fun. And you can't ask for a more immersive learning experience than actually being in the play while reading it. So I felt like I had a completely different perspective when we were reading it in class. And it was definitely a lot of fun. That is so cool. I love it so much. And you've Taught it or no, I have. I taught it once, but I <laughs> I was long term subbing, so it was kind of thrust upon me, and I had jumped into it without much preparation or thought ahead of time. Um, and it was the first time that I had approached the text since high school, so um, I did teach it, and it went fine. It went over well. I think there's a lot that I would do different if I had a lot more time to plan, but it is a fun text to teach yeah I so I am pretty sure I read this in
0: high school I don't again really have very strong memories of it except I vividly remember so many times in class like raising my hand because I really wanted to be one of the main characters and then not not getting called on so yeah probably I was over eager (laughs) And now as a teacher, I understand that. Like, you want to get all the, the kids involved. Yeah. <laughs> but, and then I also taught it once. It was my first year teaching high school. I think it's still in the American literature curriculum at my school, but not in the AP version of the American Lit curriculum. So when I taught standard track American Lit my first year there, I taught this and then haven't had the opportunity to teach it again. So I don't even really... Remember how it went. I remember watching the movie and all of the girls thinking that John Proctor was
1: really hot. <laughs> Daniel Day-Lewis had his moments. Yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> That's my strongest memory of teaching the Crucible. So, uh, yeah. Yeah. But I, I agree that there's a lot in this play to discuss, and I completely understand why it's a standard in high school English classes. In In my curriculum, I think we did both this and The Scarlet Letter, and I was like, okay, this is like a little much Puritan yeah. stuff for me, but I think it's a fun one for students. They always have a lot to say about these characters, and anytime a class has strong feelings about a character, it makes for a good discussion,
1: even if it's just, oh, John Proctor's really hot. (laughs) (laughs) This, so we've talked before about how there are very few classics that end up in the curriculum that have teenage characters. So our high school students often don't end up reading any texts where characters are the same age as them. And this is one of those rare moments where it's the teenagers who are really driving the story.
0: That's so true. I hadn't even really thought about that. But yeah, absolutely. It's these young girls who are the driving force of the story, although certainly not presented in the best light. I I mean, there's just so much to unpack with this that you can see the girls as powerful, or you could see them as completely evil, or both, and it's just, there's just so much here.
1: (laughs) And I'm interested to get your take on that, especially with your experience teaching it, and just in general teaching at an all-girls school, because I think so many of the modern retellings of The Crucible that we see in fiction tend to take place in a high school or take place in an all-girls school. And it's always interesting to see, are the girls villainized? I have some interesting thoughts on power in this text, and now I'm starting to get my thoughts all jumbled up. So let's just talk about the power that these girls have in the town and the power of girls influencing each other, especially at the ages of, you know, like 13 through 18, let's say. Yeah, I think that, of course,
0: the historical context of the play is really important, both in terms of the time it was written and the time it takes place. But it's important to think about what it would have been like to be a young girl in this community just on a day-to-day basis and how little power and control they had. So they were either servants or expected to at some point be get married very young probably and at that point become kind of the property of their husbands. The Kind of outcomes for a woman's life at this point would have been, you know, being married and becoming a mother, likely dying in childbirth. And then also, of course, we see in this play the fate of widows who can lose their land and become homeless basically once their husbands die and reliant on the charity of the community. So it was not a great outlook for these girls just not a lot of options. And so I I think in the historical context, the girls are powerless.
1: I think a really common reaction from kids, and certainly I'm sure I felt this way when reading it in high school, is to really villainize these girls who are basically terrorizing the town, who are condemning people to die, innocent people. And it is really horrible. But I will say this last time that I read it when I was teaching it in the fall, I found myself rooting for them a little bit or at least really understanding that it probably felt so good to finally have someone listening to you. Yes. To have the power of choice in your life to have the freedom to actually speak. I mean, these girls probably were never allowed to speak in the presence of men in the community before. And now the men are literally listening to them on the record. Yep. And so I had a completely different understanding approaching it as an adult (laughs) with more experience.
0: I completely agree. And I I think that you know, one of the ways that historians interpret the Salem Witch Trials is this kind of hysteria caused by boredom and lack of intellectual stimulation, where then when these girls find this outlet for expressing themselves and getting getting attention, but in a not in a, like, attention-seeking kind of way, but just how often they would have been pushed to the margins otherwise, and now they are at the center of the story, you can see how that would be intoxicating.
1: Absolutely. And not to mention, the play opens, and the reason that this all starts is they get caught dancing in the woods. and Which is not allowed. No dancing. Right. And it's made to be this really sinister thing. And granted, they are sort of doing charms and talking about the boys that they have crushes on. But it can all be played off as completely innocent fun. And when would these girls ever get to have fun? And then they get caught and condemned for doing something that is just a part of girlhood. I had dance parties with my friends all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah.
0: Yeah. I think that's a really good point. And that does set this into motion. So they're so worried that they are going to get in trouble that they start accusing other people of – sending out their spirits and forcing them to behave in these ways that they know are wrong and against God, but they can't, they're not to blame. So they start, and that also I feel like is a very human and very immature reaction, but very age appropriate to be like, oh, it wasn't my fault. Like she made me do this. I wouldn't have done it by myself. And so I I think we can
1: if not condone at least understand that impulse. And one of the girls specifically really seems to have knowledge that the other ones don't where she can sort of see where this is going and see how to manipulate others to her advantage and that is Abigail. Yeah. So she quickly becomes the leader of the pack and the driving force behind a lot of the girls' decisions, and she seems to be the one that is really stirring the pot. So let's talk about Abigail for a little bit.
0: Okay, I can't wait. (laughs) I have such complicated (laughs) feelings about her and about the way Arthur Miller wrote her. So I do think it's important to note right away that the historical Abigail Williams was 12 years old, and... Arthur Miller makes her 17 and gives her this sexual and romantic relationship with the protagonist, John Proctor, as kind of the heart of this
1: text. Thinking back on this, this is a really popular play performed in high schools. And thinking back on this, I was like, I probably had no like real concept of the intense sexual dynamics <laughs> of this play when we were rehearsing it and I was a freshman in high school.
0: Yeah, I know. I was thinking about that, too, while I was watching because, you know, as a as a teacher, when you're selecting new books for your classroom, you're always concerned about sexual content and if parents are going to complain and what's appropriate for a teacher to give a student and all of that. But when it's disguised in this, like, old-timey language, you can get away with a lot more and (laughs) (laughs) this just
1: there's a lot of sexual content in this and I don't remember how old John Proctor is supposed to be in that I mean he is much older than Abigail but I don't remember if his age is even mentioned
0: he has two kids who are like you know eight to ten ish so he's definitely I would say he's in his 30s much older. And he's her employer. Mm-hmm. So It's bad. It's really bad. So I, I really, <laughs> again, this is why I have such complicated feelings about Abigail, because I definitely think that much of her behavior and actions in this text are so evil. But also, she is a 17-year-old, likely like 16 when this affair was happening, because it happens before the events of the the text and her much older employer pursued a romantic relationship with her and then cut things off when his wife found out and of course that would have deep emotional impacts on a on a teenage girl or anyone but especially a teenage girl
1: yes and it really is framed as she's super in love and obsessed with him in the play
0: super clingy
1: yes. and he is still drawn to her there are scenes throughout the play where he's still really tempted by her and he like has a hard time getting himself in check and focusing on his wife yeah
0: yes and you know he he calls her a whore throughout Mm -hmm. the the book and, and the play, I feel like the play sides with him on that, that she is this temptress. She is super powerful and has the, this power to convince the whole town that all of these other women are witches and therefore she must also have the power to seduce this good man who wouldn't otherwise ever cheat on his wife, but for her like seduction
1: It's problematic. I think that that's absolutely the movie portrayal of the play sides with him for sure and I think that when kids in a classroom are interpreting it for themselves because we want to root for a good guy it's easy to pick John Proctor because he's sort of standing up for what's right and he's trying to save the town. It's easy to not see him as a complex character but when I was just reading the play I did find that I think we're supposed to look at him as more complex and struggling and as an imperfect man and that maybe we're not always supposed to agree with his decisions because it It is a more interesting play when the morality is blurred, especially because they're living in a society that is very black and white about all of their faith and their rules. So to have a character who, you know, sort of is in that in-between area makes him a lot more interesting. I'm not condoning his actions, but I do think he is an interesting, complex character. That makes sense. And I think
0: that you're right that the play on the page, and then it depends how the director interprets it, does grant him that complexity one area where i think the play is pretty black and white is this like virgin whore binary with the two women where elizabeth is maternal and saintly saintly, she never tells a lie never tells a lie (laughs) except the one (laughs) lie she tells to protect her husband and she's she is presented as kind of cold but in this very christian saintly i think was exactly the right word way whereas abigail is all passion and fire and and lust and it that bit i think is a little bit overly simplistic even on the page
1: yes oh 100 it is and it is def- I mean, it's definitely something that has to be addressed if you're teaching this text. And as you were talking about that, I was just thinking it's really, I mean, aside from the fact that there are teenage characters and it's the hysteria is really interesting and the history is cool, aside from all of that, this play is just so rich in literary devices. We have the irony, we have a lot of symbolism. It's just such an easy play to teach. Yes. Okay. Speaking of symbolism, I should have just looked this up, but I didn't. What is a crucible? It's like a really hot, it's like a blacksmith thing. Okay. So, it's like this really hot thing where everything gets like melted down and okay. okay. I think okay. I I think so. Let me double check that. Let's <laughs> Google it. I'm
0: like like This whole time, I'm like, this is probably important, and I've never really thought about it
1: before. Yes. Okay. Uh, A ceramic or metal container in which metals or other substances may be melted or subjected to very high temperatures. Okay. That makes sense. So, like, the community is the crucible. Yes. It can refer to a situation of severe trial or in which different elements interact leading to the creation of something new. Ah. What a great title. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think it's mentioned throughout the play, though. I don't think so either, which is probably why I've like never really looked it up. There might be one throwaway line, but anyway. We were talking about John Proctor and Abigail and their relationship. Gosh, I mean, I think performing in this play and reading it as a freshman, of course, I idolized Elizabeth because that's the way the director Want, of course, like she wasn't gonna be like all of you teenage girls. Abigail's the fun one. Let's <laughs> idolize her. She she wanted us all to be good girls, but <laughs> gosh, Abigail's way more fun. Yeah, she's way more
0: fun, and she she relishes her power, and she, like you said, she's the one who can see the long game. The other girls are playing and pretending and caught up in the the intoxication of the power, but she has. A mission which is to get Elizabeth out of the picture although her foresight isn't that great because I'm not sure if she really thinks that John is going to come running to her like oh thanks for getting my wife killed now we can be together I don't know I don't really see that happening
1: <laughs> it's it's very true to the teen brain I will yes. say I mean yes They aren't thinking about their decisions. They're just acting on emotion and impulse. And the hysteria does spread to the rest of the townspeople, but it is mostly these girls who are affected. And surely that has something to do with the fact that their brains aren't all the way developed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, that's very true. And emotions run higher and it's so easy to feed off of the emotions of others when you're a teenager and everyone's just a ball of hormones and feelings
0: yeah I think that that scene with Mary Warren is a great example of that where she's confessed that all of this is pretend and that she never saw spirits she never saw the devil and you know they were making it all up and so one of the magistrates is like, "Okay, well if you're making it up, like show us how you pretend to faint." And she can't do it. And it of course she can't do it because the reason that they can faint on on cue, so to speak, is because they're feeding off of the emotions of each other and the hysteria of each other. And they almost believe what they're saying because they're all saying it together
1: and there's power in that. Totally. And I think that if you're ever in a crowd, whether it's for, I mean, we're not now, but (laughs) (laughs) when crowds were a thing, (laughs) whether it was a concert or a protest or whatever it might be, you can totally feel the energy of other people around you and feed off of that. And that's a natural human response.
0: Yeah, totally. Yeah. And as any teacher or parent of a teen knows is even more true for teens
1: all right let's pivot a little bit we've talked a lot about some of the main characters and the role of i would say like a feminist lens we've talked about um, sex and gender in this play but we haven't talked at all about tituba and her role in the play, and race in The Crucible.
0: Yes, and it is really important to, to look at this through this critical race lens, and how the first person accused of witchcraft is the one black woman in the play. And she, Tituba, she's from Barbados. She's enslaved, I believe. And she's a very easy target because
1: she's the most vulnerable person in the community yeah and she pretty quickly once when, when she realizes where the power is shifting sides with the girls mm-hmm. and it can be really easy to condemn her for that but when you take a look at She is completely powerless. That's the only chance she has at survival. She knows how easy it is for her to get accused and sent to jail. She quickly picks
0: up on who the other vulnerable people in the community are and who the powerful people in the community hate and therefore want to condemn. And so she just hands them on a silver platter these other women who the society is really eager to condemn for other reasons. And we want to condemn anyone who's pointing to other innocent people, but she's really smart in understanding that that's the way she's going to get out of this and gain back a little bit of goodwill
1: from the community. Definitely important when reading this in the classroom to examine the character of Tichiba through critical race lens and I think one of the best questions in regards to that is just asking students to track where the power is and who holds the power in any given scene who has the most power throughout the play who has the least and they can very quickly pick up that Tichuba is at the very bottom of the list
0: yes and I think that that is such an interesting and important conversation for for the whole discussion of the play and even if you're thinking about, like, the history of the Salem Witch Trials, how it was these very, for the most part, these very vulnerable people who were accused. So the very elderly, the homeless, widows. And so I, I appreciate that it, that it looks at the way that those in power prey on the vulnerable in this situation for a variety of reasons.
1: And it makes it really easy to pull the lens much wider and ask, okay, so where might we see this in modern society? Who are the most vulnerable people who get left out or accused in the high school? Who are the students who end up getting bullied or targeted for whatever it is about them that people make remarks about or cast them aside for so it it makes it pretty easy to connect I think to our modern time oh absolutely thinking about it now I mean it's not without its problems but this is a a really relevant text it really it really is and I I think
0: before we get into like some specific relevance of the text I I also think like we mentioned at the start of this one of the reasons that this particular historical event and this particular play are so popular is people really enjoy theorizing about what really happened and why it happened and I always use this event to talk about the way history is interpreted and how often the way history is interpreted says more about the people doing the interpreting than it does about the actual history. And so we see uh, over time, you know, people interpreting the Salem witch trials as, oh, there was a particular type of mold on the bread <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that when the girls ate it, it gave them hallucinations. And of course, that theory was popular in the 1960s and 70s when hallucinogenic (laughs) drugs were becoming much more prevalent. So it's just, it says a lot about the, the people doing the interpreting, which is so fascinating to look
1: at. I have noticed as we were looking at which books to pair for this episode and we were kind of looking at the publishing calendar ahead, it seems like there are a lot of witchy books coming out right now. And... I, whenever there are trends in publishing like that, I never think it's a coincidence. So I find that really fascinating. I'm curious to hear if you have any thoughts about why that might be.
0: Well, I think that the prevalence of the phrase witch hunt in our cultural consciousness and in our current political moment is probably a huge part of that. But I also think likely the Me Too Movement has something to do with this, and I mean, those two things are connected, (laughs) yes. Of course,
1: I was thinking about how this play that deals with false accusations could really bump up against the Me Too movement in opposition to it because we have these young women who are the ones accusing innocent people and condemning them. And of course, you don't want to condone that and say no, but people should be believing these girls. And yet in our current cultural moment, we do have this movement. And we have more stories to draw from about the importance of believing girls and women when they make Accusations, and I don't even want to say it like that, when they tell their stories and share their truth. And so this play can be tricky, I think, in the current moment.
0: I think that that is absolutely correct. I think that one frustration or just observation about that issue and, you know, looking at this group of girls as being the accusers and Feeding off of each other and being power mad is that the group of people they're accusing are also women, vulnerable women who aren't believed themselves when they say, no, I am not a witch. (laughs) And we like the society isn't believing those women. That doesn't solve the problem of bringing this into the play into the classroom and how you would address all of this. But I think when we boil things down to the phrase like witch hunt. We forget that both the accusers and the accused were both from extremely vulnerable populations trying to like grasp at the little power they had and that the real villains (laughs) of the story are the powerful men who were choosing which version they wanted to believe because it best suited their ambitions.
1: I think that we are circling a good point. that (laughs) We'll get there eventually. (laughs) Well, no, I think we've been making good points. But I think what this partly boils down to from a teacher perspective is that a text doesn't have to be perfect in order to pull really great conversations into the classroom. So I know a lot of teachers are assessing their texts right now to see if they do a good job of representation, if they have a good mix of windows and mirrors, and that is amazing and we need to do that. But there will be some districts who push back on that. There will be some curriculum coordinators who won't budge about adding texts. And so it's good to remember that you can teach a text like The Crucible. There might be something better to teach instead, but you can teach a text like The Crucible and you can pull in all of these conversations about race and sexism and vulnerability and the Me Too movement in a natural way that is in conversation with the text, just with the way that you teach or with the way that you talk to your students about it. That's such a
0: good point. And and it's, of course, so important to be doing that work with every text you bring in, because if you teach the white classic texts as just saying, like, universal things or just a good way to investigate literary devices, and then books by authors of color as the time where you talk about race and power, that's that's a problem, too. Like, we need to be having these conversations around every text I also think that for our non-teacher readers out there, I, I think it's fun to start to see that you can apply contemporary ideologies and insights to older texts and that that is a perfectly valid way to read critically and that you don't have to just say, oh, well, this book is a product of its time and that's why it presents women like this or that's why it presents characters of color like this like we can be critical and analytical using our modern framework when we look at those older texts too
1: I love it I didn't think that we were going to uh get this academic this episode but I <laughs> I'm really into
0: it <laughs> Yeah I I think you know we're probably both in need of some good nerdy academic discussion right about now so I'm glad we got to have it Definitely. Hopefully our listeners feel the same (laughs) way.
1: All right. Well, Sarah, should we get into some pairings? Because we have some really fun witchy books to talk about today. My gosh, Chelsea. Yes, we should, but this was so (laughs) hard for me. Do you love witchy content and like that witchy element to books? Like I have some reader friends who love books about witches and... I don't know that I actively seek them out, but I do find them interesting. I definitely am one of those
0: people, but I also just am fascinated by the Puritans. So I was like very torn about like, oh, I could do all witchy books or I, <laughs> I could have I could have done three amazing nonfiction pairings about the Puritans. And I just so I tried to have some balance here.
1: <laughs> I'm really excited to hear about your picks.
0: <laughs> I'm excited to hear yours. And I think your first one is a cosine from us. I'm in the middle of it now, but I know that I'm going to love it the whole way through. So do you want to talk about yours
1: first? Sure. I'm actually only halfway through as well, but it's, I mean, I'm completely fine with saying this is going to be on my list of at least favorite books of the summer. It might even land on my favorite books of the year list. But we are talking about We Ride Upon Sticks by Kwan Berry. And this book has a fabulous cover, so I think it's easily recognizable (laughs) if you've been seeing it online or on summer book lists. So uh, before, I played Mary Warren in The Crucible in February of my freshman year. I played field hockey in the fall. So Kwan Berry's inventive novel about the Danvers, Massachusetts field hockey team and their witchy Salem witch trial-ish antics. Kind of feels like it was written for me. (laughs) And it takes place in the 80s, so that kind of nostalgia was a little bit before my time, but it is really, really fun. So this book is written in first-person plural, told by the field hockey team. So you get a lot of sentences with, we did this, and it's a really interesting narrative style, and it took me a little while to get used to, but I'm very into it. And this story is about teen dynamics and sexuality, identity, and what it takes to win. So basically, at Summerfield hockey Camp, two of the girls, decide to try a spell that they found in an old book about the salem witch trials and they write their names in a notebook with a picture of emilio estevez in it (laughs) and their field hockey game starts to improve so eventually they get the entire team to sign the book pledging allegiance to the darkness and they hope that if everybody pledges and writes their names in this notebook just like the girls during the salem witch trials did so, you know signing the devil's book uh-huh. <laughs> that they could maybe finally win their state field hockey championship this year so that's the beginning of the book and then it goes from there with the girls navigating this through high school and sort of finding the lines between right and wrong Quan berry was on the danvers field hockey team in the 80s But the only character that's actually directly inspired by a real person in her book is the head coach, which I just think that's really fun that she had this fondness for the head coach and put her in the book. And not only is this the perfect match for the Crucible, it's just witty and original. And I'm really enjoying it as a summer read, which is when we're recording this, but I think it's a great Back to school fall book as well, because most of the field hockey season takes place during the fall. And then, of course, there is a great witchy element. I think it took me about 60 pages to really get into this book. You have to get used to the style. Very few books are written in first person plural, it's a unique narration device. And it took me a little bit to get invested in the characters, but it's been really fun to relive my field hockey days. And it's just such a unique story. I actually was reading something recently about how the first person
0: plural narration is becoming kind of a trend right now. Oh. I know. And it didn't really hypothesize on why, but that will be interesting to maybe look back on in a few years and think about why first person plural is kind of having a moment right now.
1: That is interesting. So I read an interview with Kwan Berry on electric literature and I'll link to that in the show notes and she explains why she chose first person plural and one reason was that the virgin suicides was written in first person plural but from this group of boys perspective and I can see where there are some ties with that but then she just also talked about like the team aspect and that it felt right to write them as a we and I'll link to it so that people can read more but it's a fun book to have that background for I will say the interview is enhancing my reading experience okay I am really excited to hear about your first pairing Sarah so my first one
0: is Beheld by Tara Shea Nesbitt and this is a 2020 release And it has a beautiful cover, and it's gotten great reviews, but I still feel like it's kind of under the radar. And I judge all of that from Bookstagram, and I just haven't seen this one on Bookstagram much. So I just listened to it on audio, and I really enjoyed it, and so I wanted to give it a shout-out here. So it's a historical fiction novel, and it's about Plymouth. And it's told in alternating perspectives. So the three main characters are Alice Bradford, who's the wife of the Plymouth governor, and Eleanor and John Billington, who are former indentured servants who are considered outsiders in the community. So historically, a lot of people came to the colonies from Europe as indentured servants, which meant they had to work for a family for no pay for seven years. And then they were free and given homestead. So it created a really interesting dynamic in these early colonies. So I thought that that was an interesting setup for for this one. So you learn early on in the novel that the plot of the book is leading up to the first murder in the community. And so the tension builds throughout the text. And the tone is totally different. But what this reminded me of was actually Leon Moriarty books where she kind of hangs an event over your head and you're just reading and reading to try and figure out how you arrive at, at that event, at, at the murder in this case. So it's important that this book is set in Plymouth and not Salem, which according to the characters in Beheld these two are very different. The crazies live in Salem and Plymouth is much more civilized. (laughs) But there is a lot of interesting commentary here on the sexism, racism, and classism that all of these Massachusetts colonies were built on. And I think Americans, we like to think of the Puritans as these hardworking, tight-knit communities seeking religious freedom and that those are the ideals that The United States is is built upon. But there's a lot of troubling beliefs that the Puritans held and a lot of really horrendous things that they did that still impact our Americanness today. And I think that Beheld just does a really good job of showing all of that in ways that are sometimes humorous and really plot-driven and interesting. So you don't feel like you're reading like a textbook on this, it's it's a great story and great characters. And it's short. It's like six hours on audio, which is nice. So that's Beheld by Tara Shea Nesbitt.
1: This one has been on my radar, but I, I really like the sound of it from the way you described it, especially as sort of a murder mystery. It sounds like a lot of fun. Yes.
0: There end up being multiple mysteries throughout as you kind of read more and... They're all handled very well. And I recommend the audio because it is a full cast. So there are four, I think, four different narrators um, for the different protagonists. So
1: I love oh, that. Nice.
0: Yeah. All right, Chelsea, what is
1: your second pairing? My second pairing, I actually think you mentioned this title to me a few months ago, The Year of Witching by Alexis Henderson. And this is a brand new release, at least at the time of recording. And I have a copy from NetGalley, but I haven't read it yet because, like we said, we're recording this in the summer. It's not quite, <laughs> it's not quite spooky season it's not yet. Not witchy season yet. <laughs> but it sounds really good. So, The Year of Witching is Alexis Henderson's debut novel, and it's been described as a feminist fantasy novel about a young woman living in a strict puritanical society who discovers that she possesses some dark powers. And Emmanuel, the young woman, is mixed race. And because of that, she is considered an outsider. And her family is sort of shunned by the community. So she does her best to follow the rules and live a faith-filled life and basically assimilate and make up for her family's disgrace in the eyes of the community. But one day, she is lured into the woods And we all know from reading The Crucible that the woods is the bad place. (laughs) And she finds her mother's journal through some spiritual spooky means. And of course, from the journal, there are dark secrets to be revealed and this is just the kind of book I can totally imagine curling up with on a chilly fall day and getting completely absorbed into. So I'm excited to pick that one up and I will be sure to give an update on that one later when I've read it in the fall. Yeah, that one sounds so good. That sounds like my kind of witchy book for sure. Yeah, I think so. And I'm, I'm very curious to see what more of the fantasy elements are. Because it's described as a fantasy, but the plot description is very like historical sticks to sort of like her faith and the secrets. And so I'm curious to see how exactly how witchy and spiritual it is. Yeah. Okay. What is your next pairing?
0: So my next one is The Wordy Shipmates by Sarah Vowell. Have you read any Sarah Vowell books? I have not. Okay, so she's one of my favorite nonfiction writers. She's just really insightful, and her writing's very informative, but also really, really funny. She just has this great way of presenting history with this sort of ironic and winking eye, and I love that. And this is another kind of debunking Puritan myths pick, which... (laughs) I find really fun. <laughs> so, I think that the back of the book is the best description of this. I couldn't do it better because the back of the book kind of has vowels tone to it. So, this is a book that's looking at at the Puritans and according to the back cover, what Vowel discovers is something far different from what their uptight shoe buckles and corn reputation <laughs> might suggest. The people she finds are highly literate, deeply principled, and surprisingly feisty. Their story is filled with pamphlet feuds, witty courtroom dramas, and bloody vengeance. Along the way, she asks, Was Massachusetts Bay Colony Governor John Winthrop a communitarian, Christ-like Christian? Or Conformity's tyrannical enforcer? Yes. Yes. <laughs> What does it take to get that Jezebel Ann Hutchinson to shut up? A hatchet. (laughs) What was the Puritans' pet name for the Pope? The Great Whore of Babylon. (laughs) So she just has all of these kind of tidbits about the Puritans and how weird they are. This book is really, really fun. I've used excerpts from it in class, and students always really enjoy talking about it. And I love a work of history that both gives me... Historical details, but also reflects on the way people tell the history, kind of what, like what we were talking about earlier. So, what do the stories we tell ourselves about the founding colonies reveal about us today? That's a really interesting question to me. And, and the book does that really well while being super fun. So, if you're interested in history generally or the Puritans and the witch trials
1: specifically, I highly recommend. The Wordy Shipmates by Sarah Vowell. That sounds so fun. I'm stuck on surprisingly feisty. I think that might be my new favorite <laughs> word combo. <laughs> I know her writing. I mean, I, I don't
0: know. If she wrote the back cover. Most authors don't. But th- th- that's what her writing feels like. So yeah, she's she's great. And all of her works that I've read, I recommend. She's a phenomenal historian. But this one might be my favorite. So
1: all right, well, speaking of the stories we tell and the histories we tell, this next pick reveals more about Tituba. So, this is I, Tituba, Black Witch of Salem by Maurice Conde. And if you're still looking for a book in translation for your 2020 reading challenge, this would be a good one to pick up. Maurice Conde is from Guadalupe, and I believe that this book was originally published in French. So Tichuba is one of the most important characters in The Crucible, but we've talked about how her representation is problematic. She doesn't get very many lines in the play, and it's just really easy to reduce her character to racist stereotypes. Arthur Miller, white man, 1950s is when he's writing this. He wasn't going to get it right, no matter what he did. <laughs> <laughs> but in I, Tichuba, Maurice Conde she can get it right. She writes Tichuba's backstory and simultaneously reveals racist and sexist ideas not only of the time of the Puritans, but just behind the founding of our country in general. So this was published in 1994. It could almost be considered a modern classic, and I think it's definitely something to consider bringing into the classroom if not in its entirety then portions of it or to read as some background information when you're teaching the crucible this has been
0: on my radar for so long and i don't i don't know why i haven't read it yet but it's on so many lists for you know women in literature classes or for bringing critical race theory into discussions And I see it compared a lot with Wide Sargasso Sea by Jean Reese, which is one of my favorite books. So I I really need to pick this one up.
1: Okay, Sarah, what is your last witchy pick for us? Okay, my last
0: one is like a really cozy fall witchy book and another kind of underrated gem. So This is A Secret History of Witches by Louisa Morgan. And I'm surprised I don't see this one all over because it has a great cover. It has witches, which a lot of readers love. And it's a multi-generational family saga, which is just a genre that so many readers I know adore. So I've probably already hooked many people and that's enough for them. But just to tell you a little bit more. So the story begins in 19th century Brittany, France, where a family is being pursued by witch hunters and they end up fleeing and starting over again, basically as refugees in England. And then the story follows four more generations of the family, the Orchier family, which I have a hard time saying because languages are not my forte. But um, it follows them all the way through into World War II London. So that's another thing that people love, World War II historical fiction. And this has, you know, the last fifth of the book is focused on World War II in London. So I love all of those elements of the book. I also really love the way women's power is presented in the novel. So magic is seen as both very feminine, but also very powerful. And the family is very much a matriarchy, powers passed down from mother to daughter, and Morgan really leans into that idea of the divine feminine and look at, looks at how some of these pre-Christian beliefs maybe still shape the world and, and the powers women were allowed to have and not allowed to have, and I find all of that really interesting. I also like the range of characters she presents, so some of the women really want power but don't have a very strong power, and others feel burdened by their power and wish they could just have a normal life and try to have that normal life, and I I love, I love that. She creates some really interesting characters, and I like how she weaves in history without it being too heavy-handed. So, for example, one of the characters is involved in World War II, but it's not the kind of, like, cutesy storyline where you're like, oh, and this magic was actually how this event happened in history, like too neat and tidy and adorable. So I just, I think this is a beautiful book. It's long, but it goes by quickly. It's definitely a hot cup of tea and cozy blanket read. And then if you like this one, Morgan has, I think she has a couple other books about all about witches, and her newest is called The Age of Witches, and it takes place in Gilded Age, New York City. I haven't read that one yet, but I am putting it on my fall reading list. So any fan of historical fiction, books about witches, multi-generational family sagas, I think all of those types of readers would like A Secret History of Witches.
1: That sounds so good, but then you said Gilded Age and I'm like ready for the You next gotta skip one. ahead to that one. <laughs> okay, Sarah, so we not only have a bunch more witchy books that we could recommend, which we will save, don't worry, we'll share those at some point, but we also have some picks of the week. So I am really excited to hear what Crucible tie-in you have for us.
0: Okay, so I have a podcast and it is called the unobscured podcast and the host is Aaron Mankey, who is the creator of lore which is like a web series but also books about myths and legends and and all of that which is really cool and there are two seasons the first season is all about the Salem witch trials and he interviews the experts in the field and this is like really nerdy history like 12 episodes <laughs> of very specific historical figures and the way wills worked and the way land ownership worked and all of that to kind of explore and give an in-depth picture of the the Salem Witch Trials I really loved this podcast but you definitely have to be a history nerd it's not just like a 1 hour Brief overview on the history. It is a deep dive. How about you? What is your pick this week?
1: I also have a podcast, and I have mentioned this podcast before, but I imagine I can't be the only one who has a literary and film history sort of crossover obsession. (laughs) So you must remember this is a podcast all about old Hollywood and episode 14 is about Arthur Miller. The episode title is After the Fall, and this is part of their Blacklist series, so it is all about celebrities who were blacklisted for various reasons, including the McCarthy trials and communism, and so if you are interested in that part of the crucible and sort of the behind the scenes of arthur miller writing this and the time period in which it was written i think that that's a fabulous episode to listen to and of course it mentions his relationship with marilyn monroe and some other interesting hollywood figures so that's you must remember this arthur miller all right well i
0: I'm definitely in a fall mood after this discussion. I, know, I was
1: just thinking, I really want to put on a sweater now. Uh huh. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Curl up with either a witchy
1: book or some like serious <sighs> academic read and just enjoy the fall feelings. Well, when this episode releases, we will be wearing our cozy sweaters and sipping some tea and hopefully enjoying some really good witchy reads. Indeed. Thank you all so much for hanging out with us today. A great way to support the show is to share Novel Pairings in your Instagram stories to let your friends know that you're listening. And while you're there, follow us on Instagram at Novel Pairings Pod for news, announcements, and bonus book recommendations. We would love to know whether you pick up any of the witchy books that we mentioned today. So be sure to tell us what you think. And please tell your fellow bookworms about the Novel Pairings Pod by sending them a link in a text message or writing a review on apple podcasts thank
0: you to michelle timmons for her assistance on this episode and to miles eichner and mark anderson for our theme music next week we'll be back with our fall episode of our short story club until then we declare after all there is no enjoyment like reading how much sooner one tires of anything